good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, listeners. I'm giving you plenty of choices, because today we've got a podcast with plenty of choices. What I want you to choose is the most bullshit job you've ever done. And just pause the podcast for 10 seconds and remember that bullshit job and how bullshit it made you feel and how you ran screaming to do something else or couldn't because you needed the money. Today on Blind Insights, David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs. I'm joined participating in something that isn't bullshit. Something's very fun. Thank you for joining me, David. We are in the no bullshit zone. <laughs> We're also here with a special guest, Jess Freund. Hi, everyone. Thank Who's you also me. in the no bullshit zone. <laughs> for the moment, at least. <laughs> hey, bullshit's for Graeber. <laughs> now, listeners, we're going to get into the bad bit of the book straight away because it was really bad for all three of us. Chapters three to five are bullshit. <laughs> if you can understand what a bullshit job is in the introduction, chapters three to five will sap your will to live. Mm. And I, I'm going to almost, in fact, if you understand what a bullshit job is by the end of uh, chapters one and two, which is what explain, which are the chapters that explain what a bullshit job is, or give the context to it as well. Yep. Then Just leap. Yeah. Just mm. imagine you're the Fonz behind the ski boat and you're going to jump the shark. Chapters three to five are the shark. And now if we have listeners that are going to listen to the podcast and aren't going to listen to the book, I'm just going to give the Wikipedia version of what the five bullshit jobs are, and then we can kind of give examples afterward. Is that okay? That sounds like an awesome way to save people a ton of grief. <laughs> so we have uh, flunkies. I love the names he gives, by the way. So flunkies who serve to make their superiors feel important, e.g. Uh, receptionists, uh, administrative assistants, and door attendants. Sometimes receptionists can be can actually end up doing the job of the people that they are assisting, which is a whole other. Yeah, that's a whole other. Which makes it thing. not a bullshit job yeah. no. in that instance. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And as he makes the point in the book, and I think this is very important historically, where women couldn't have any job other than being the assistant. The number of cases historically where the woman was doing the job of the person she was working for. Mm. So mm. historically, you see the number of women who both could get a job could be incredibly talented but never transcend that position of being the receptionist or the, the executive assistant, be doing the job of the manager but never getting the remuneration or the respect deserved. Mm. Mm. So that's a whole other issue that we could talk about, you know, gendered work and the impact of gender on work and that that could be really interesting too. Yeah, that was it was a super interesting area and I really enjoyed that he went into that side of that Yeah, side that of was that. a really good segue mm. that he had. I agree. Uh, you also have goons. Uh, Goon. And we, okay, Australian listeners, stop giggling. <laughs> We're not talking about bad wine in a plastic bottle, or sorry, a plastic bag in a cardboard box. Mm. This is not goon as you understand it. It's like a gangster. It's, right? a, what's a, it's a sort of half-assed gangster. Yeah, it's like a... Gangster light. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Goons are people with jobs who, are, who oppose other goons hired by other companies, uh, e.g. Uh, lobbyists, corporate lawyers, telemarketers, public relations specialists. And the idea here is that uh, they spend a significant amount of energy trying to convince you to do something not in your best interest. Mm. And you could encounter goons from multiple organisations in the same day, mm -hmm. all of whom would be persuading you to do something that's good for their boss. Yes. It's not really good for them. It's not really good for you. And yet it makes the 
finance, insurance, and real estate industry go round. Yes, yes, it, it almost defines it. In, in fact, yeah. Uh, then you have duct tapers who temporarily fix problems that could be fixed permanently, e.g., programmers repairing shoddy code, airline desk staff who calm passengers who ba- whose bags do not arrive. I think the programmers one was the was the best case, but for the ease of explanation, the airline desk staff who, who calm passengers whose bags do not arrive is just a completely pointless job, but adds this whole customer service. Mm. But mm, fixing element. the system would mean you had to get rid of other kinds of bullshit jobs. Mm. And because you won't fix the system and you won't get rid of other bullshit jobs and make other jobs meaningful, you have to have that poor person standing at that desk waiting just in case. And as we can see in Australia, most airlines, because of COVID, are going to get rid of those people available to help you find your lost bag. Mm. Now you have to get your phone out, ring the magic number, and talk to someone who's sitting in a call centre who all they do all day is deal with the person who's lost their bags. And it's not face-to-face. They're not going to feel supported. They're going to be probably even angrier and more upset. Mm. And having that job would be even more bullshit than it used to be. Yeah, I must admit, I think that's an interesting example that I perhaps don't necessarily agree with. Because mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps it's my bias having worked at Qantas. But I think that, you know, being able to calm down people in that moment of anxiety, you might have really important things in your bag. You might have your laptop in your bag. You might have all these important, you know, yeah. I don't know, whatever important things in your bag. You might be getting married and have your wedding dress in your bag. So I don't know. To me, that's not necessarily a bullshit job. No, but it's a care economy job, which is the most important things we have because it's looking after other people. Correct. And society. And if it was labelled as that, you wouldn't just have the person dealing with my bags gone. You'd acknowledge that this person is in a care role Mm. and you would put enough work under that care label so their day was genuinely full of meaningful caring activity and you would pay them properly to do caring things. Correct. And I mean, I don't want to digress from what we're already talking about and I'm sure we'll touch on this later, but it's all about the way that you phrase the job and the way that the manager handles the employee. It's not to say that job shouldn't be there. It's about what the worker does within that role and how they find meaning within the role. But we will get to that later. But it's also <laughs> the the amount of work that they do. Yes. So that yes. job it's might... It's the hours of standing on the desk waiting for the freaked out passenger mm. as opposed to recognising that a person working for an airline could be in a care role where they have several tasks that are all about caring for people where things have gone wrong. Mm. You, know, you could be the Qantas problem solver person at this airport for this shift and it could be really meaningful mm. if phrased in those terms. So there's something we've talked about in complex problem solving, definitely when Tim did it, probably not when Jess did it, the idea of job crafting. That if you let people define what their own job is about, they build more meaning in than the system does. Mm. Well, yeah, because they have to. Because otherwise insanity. you feel miserable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's uh, when Graeber describes these things, it's from the kind of macro perspective. So when I mm. think about my job, um, even in like, say in retail, it's a little bit easier for me to think about how that actually affects other people. But you, you can also you can shape yours through job crafting towards more of a caring mm. economy mm, role sure. because mm. you're helping someone solve a problem with their car. Mm. Yeah. But that can be a caring thing if you want to take it that way. And that's how you cope with repetition. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think the, the way that Graeber describes it, though, is that th- these companies will spend more money. They, they do the equation and it works out cheaper to, to duct tape the problem than it does to fix it completely. Yep. Yes. Um, so yep. that's why it ends up being kind of bullshit. Like if, if yep. baggage was never lost. Yep. You wouldn't well, you need wouldn't that need, yeah. oh, Yes, exactly. So uh, then we go on to box tickers. Mm. <laughs> And this is my favourite one because I think this is the one that most people identify as like bureaucracy. Having just enrolled at Adelaide Uni 
woe with there a lot of box ticking. Mm. And I'm sure that some poor person has to confirm that I ticked all the right boxes. Mm. I can't. The only thing imagine I can imagine that's worse than filling all the forms in is the person has to confirm I did them right. <laughs> poor person. Far out. And it's just to make sure that people don't slip through the cracks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, box stickers uh, create the appearance that something useful is being done when it is not, e.g. Uh, survey administrators, in-house magazine journalists, and corporate compliance officers. So in-house magazine journalists being like if Adelaide University had a, a newsletter they sent around to justice staff. Well, hmm. we, what we did get, I think that was the equivalent, was an internal like variant of social media called Yammer. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's quite popular. Uh, yeah. And we all got the Yammer thing and we all got asked to sign up. I thought, oh, okay, I've been asked to sign up. I'll sign up and see if anyone ever uses it. And David Cannon and I sent each other messages for a week just to work out how it worked. And then went, well, and? I think Yammer is meant <laughs> to be like Facebook for the workplace. Yeah, yeah. it was but absolutely hopeless. I guess that's more like you're generating your own content, right? Like that's meant mm. to be more like Facebook. Whereas I think from the impression of what I got about that was um, it was more about internal communications, which I've mm. seen a lot of in my corporate mm. workplaces, which is like you literally have teams of people that are like in charge of communicating to other people within the business about business stuff. Mm. But Yammer yeah. became the channel they tried to use at the uni to do it. Yeah. yeah. So they had content yeah, producers going, hi, here are the 10 major Yammer posts for mm. you know, this date. It's like, yeah. Poor peeps. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like there's a, a, a near the end of the book, Graeber describes the similar kind of thing in finance yes. uh, workplaces where no one wants to sign up to the, because they hate their job enough. Why do they want to, you know, yep. scroll their phone on the, the kind of social media version? Yep. Yeah. I mean, box tickers can also just be, uh, like you said, uh, someone that is making sure that you've enrolled properly in yep. the. Something that could be totally automated. And if there's a problem, send it to a person who, once again, has a lot of skill. Mm. But don't waste people's time just confirming things. Yeah. And then finally, you have taskmasters uh, who manage or create extra work for those who don't, do not need it, e.g. middle management uh, and leadership professionals. Mm. Yeah, and that's where that word leadership, no, if they're a leader, they're genuinely doing something useful. Mm. If they're a manager simply trying to manage you when you know what you're doing, that's really where the problem lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was... Um, uh, probably the one that I think a lot of the people can relate to in their own work um, more than see out in society. I would imagine that most people in their workplaces could identify someone that mm. maybe doesn't even need to be there in the man- in the manager. And the other spin, I think, for the management one is how often in your life have you had to manage upwards? Mm. Because the person above you actually doesn't really know what you're doing doesn't realise it needs to be done a particular way and you have to put them in the right frame of mind and help them to understand what you do in the right way just so you can get your bloody job done. Mm. Yeah. I think what what I found interesting when I was reading about the, the managerial part of the book that mm. wasn't really touched on but I, I think to be quite true is that there's such an ego trip associated with being a manager. Mm. Like, oh, how many people are you responsible for? Oh, yeah. and how many people of those people manage other people? You know, it turns into, I think it's quite an ego-driven it's a thing. It's big yeah. swing in competition. And yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I don't know, it's a bit pointless. And yeah. something that probably started more than anything about when we didn't have electronic communication and we didn't have photocopiers, part of a manager's role was to disseminate information. Mm-hmm. Now, that might have once been useful. That if you as a group had someone who disseminated to your group what you all needed to know, that was probably a good thing. And also in a world where they couldn't, you know, key log every key you pressed. Mm. 
having someone do a general level of surveillance. Well, that fits with Foucault's idea that you know you just have enough surveillance over people to remind them to self-regulate. So managers were originally you know filling a communications role and a surveillance role. Now that the comms and the surveillance can both be done electronically through broader data systems, that human is essentially superfluous. Mm. You're potentially just motivating people to feel like their jobs aren't bullshit. Yeah. 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 So the, I guess the broader idea is the jobs that if if everyone that had a bullshit job disappeared, would anyone notice that their work wasn't being yeah. done? And that's the mm. critical test you can apply to any job if you're not sure is it a bullshit job. Mm. If no one was doing this, would anyone notice? Yes. Mm. And I got the impression that it was very critical that the person that's in the job feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that to me, that was the overarching theme of Graeber's book was that it had to be that the person that's doing it has to feel that way. And then wh- I think what I found interesting about that was that that's so subjective and you could have one person sitting next to another person mm. doing the exact same job for all intents and purposes, have the same job title, right? Mm. At the same company, sitting at the same desk. One person would say it's a bullshit job and the other one next to them wouldn't. Mm. Yeah. And I think it, it, that's something I wish I, he had have expanded on more. Well, yeah. that's one of those things. If you expand on that, you have to go that this is at some level a subjective category, a yes. bullshit job. Mm. And the minute you make it subjective, then you need to do mm. a far more rigorous scientific investigation into the psychological aspects of these questions. Does this job make people feel empowered and meaningful and helpful or useful? Or is it just a way to remuneration? So we have the classic idea in the corporate world that people are extrinsically motivated that they're far more motivated by status and money than they are by anything else. And yet every survey done in the last 40 years shows the exact opposite, mm. that at least 60% of people are far more intrinsically driven. It needs to feel meaningful. It needs to feel socially valuable. It needs to empower them and empower others. Otherwise, they're like, well, I need enough money to live, but I'd rather have a little bit less money in my pay packet and a lot more sense of meaning and purpose and empowerment. Mm. So there's a sliding scale about, you know, how meaningful something is that if he gets into that, then we really have to do a lot more work. You know, in some ways, this book suffers from the fact it was an amazing essay that tried to grow into an amazing book. Mm. And the last half of the book is pretty amazing. But, you know, that's the bit where he goes, well, what do we do about the fact that across the world, survey after survey shows that between 30 and 40% of people surveyed Mm. believe they are doing a bullshit job, that if they didn't do it, no one would ever notice and it wouldn't matter. Worse than that, um, I think I think he excluded like two different countries maybe, but across the world that this generation now feels that they're going to be worse off or not as prosperous than their parents or the previous generation was. Well, that's yeah. a whole other thing you add to it, that mm. you go, okay, this taps into something we, you know, we talked about with Stephen Hale a few weeks ago, this idea of you know value, how do you value things? Does price determine value or does value determine price? And as we keep moving the value boundary to include more extractive behaviour, more jobs can only be seen as whisking and money off someone or twisting someone's arm. So we missed a thing in the discussion with Stephen because we hadn't read this book yet, and that is this kind of productive work, which makes something. There's care work that looks after people. And there's extractive work that just works out a way to skim money you know, in, out and off of things. Mm. And that productive work 
is the declining category because so many things can be automated. Caring work, the care economy, is huge. You know, the service economy is the label that the people in finance and accounts would like to call doing things that you know make a difference to other people's lives. Whereas I'd much rather see the word care. So we start revaluing this stuff. Mm. That if you are the person at Qantas looking after people who something's gone wrong in their day on a plane or at the airport and you've got lots of specialist training to do it and access to all the tools to really help, what an amazing job if you were equipped mm. and respected for doing it. Mm. And in more and more places, do we need another manager counting or do we need another person trained and equipped to care. Mm. So you know, the final part of the book, and to me it's the most important, is where this question comes up. What are we really doing? Are we counting and tabulating and confirming things? Is that really valuable? Is that really meaningful? Is that worth people being so miserable, having to go, I have to keep this job because I need money, even though what I'm doing could be automated, done by a machine, mm. has no human value? Or should we start valuing the caring economy and care work, where what people do makes other people's day better. Mm. And that's not going to settle with everyone. And I think it relates back to what Jess pointed out before, which was that it, there is a level of subjectivity to the bullshit job. Yeah. And actually, I think it raises the significance of, of Graeber using the word bullshit. Um, I, wanna, I, I was kind of disappointed he didn't include it in his book, but there was a, a great little essay that y- you can buy. As it's a really short book by um, a philosopher, Henry Frankfurt, called On Bullshit. And it's the distinction between bullshit is different from a lie yes. because you don't know if you're telling the truth or you're telling a lie. You actually just don't care whether what you're saying is true or not. Mm. And in this case... You don't know, like some of the people that might not be bothered if they have a bullshit job is that they don't care whether their job is bullshit or not, that they're doing it anyway. And it kind of relates back to one of our first podcasts, which is the extrinsic and intrinsic intrinsic motivation. So if you're um, kind of extrinsically motivated, you might not care that you have a bullshit job. And if we look at finance, insurance and real estate, they tend to be the places where people who are extrinsically motivated actually like going to work and do really well. Mm. And the thing is, we need some of these jobs to be done by people who like what they do and do them well. Mm. So some places, extrinsic motivation means it doesn't matter what I as a highly intrinsically motivated person think of it. Mm. What we really need is an economy in which we go, you're highly extrinsically motivated, Mm. I'm highly intrinsically motivated, what are the best fitting jobs? And guess what? If we're overperformers in our area... That means we get a good paycheck. Mm. That's Mm. what's missing at the moment Mm. is that people who are willing to do things that are largely about extrinsic motivation where they're repetitious or almost without clear social value, that puts a lot of people off. But they're not, but they're not, it's almost as if they don't, they're not, they're not even getting to the point where they consider whether it is bullshit or not, because the question doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. Right, because they're so extrinsically motivated. Their idea is that work's work, money's money. Yes. Well, the money matters, and so whatever it takes. And that's fine. You know what? I would argue that that's fine, because that's probably not really a bullshit job, because they would think, well, my work has got meaning because it brings me money. And money buys the things I want mm. and the status I want and everything else. So if that person can be happy, that really isn't for 
the extrinsically motivated person a bullshit job in any way, shape, or form. Well, Correct. it is. What it, oh, I still. It, this is why I brought up the bullshit, the on bullshit essay because mm-hmm. I, I'd still bullshit like from an outsider's perspective, but you could almost describe them as bullshit artists, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but oh, sorry, you go, David. I think then it's a question more of not the person in their job, but a broader question of the social utility of the whole area of endeavour. Mm. Mm. So don't question why do you do a bullshit job to the person or why do you like doing a bullshit mm. job? Go, why in our economy and society do we have all these people doing this job to make so many of them so unhappy? Yeah. That's yeah. the deeper question, yep. I think, isn't it? 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Jess, I cut you off then. Oh, no, that's okay. Because that's what – well, I was sort of along the lines of what I was going to say anyway, which is that I think you probably you almost need to – do some sort of like an inventory when you take on a new employee. Like I'm trying ah. to put this book into like a pragmatic perspective, right? Like it's yes. all well and good to talk about this from a philosophical <laughs> perspective, but I can't help but go, okay, how do we translate this into real life? Yeah. Right? Mm. And I think you almost need to do an inventory and work out, are you intrinsically or extrinsically motivated? Mm-hmm. If you're extrinsically motivated and you're in an ostensible like bullshit job, it's kind of okay. Cause you're like, well, you know what? You're probably going to sit there and rock up to work because you want to get the money. That's hmm. fine. Yeah. But as a manager, a real manager, not a bullshit manager, a caring manager, yes. um, which is probably getting to the point that I'm going to make. Well, how do I motivate you? Given that my company has decided that we want this role, it's not my decision that I want this role in this organisation necessarily. Someone above me has said, you know, this job should exist. So how do I work with that person Mm. to make them feel like the work is meaningful? And so if it's intrinsic, how do I turn that job from otherwise what what might feel bullshit into something that feels either caring or productive? And so you almost need to workshop that and develop that process with somebody so that they have that feeling within themselves. Or recruit for the extrinsic person for the extrinsic role. Correct. You know, yes. Don't let an intrinsic person pass the interview. Yeah. You know, the kid that wants to go and be in an NGO and help the world now mm. is not going to deal with being in one of the big four accounting firms doing audits. But how often do you see that happen? Well, very, so because they do brilliantly in the interviews. Everyone goes, oh, wow, we want that person because they're so motivated. Yeah. Look at their experience. Yeah, they're going to be miserable. Yeah. Yes. So really the societal questions that come up later in the book about what kind of economy do we want and does it serve our society? That's such a big question Mm. that if we answer those questions right and we target people from the perspective of extrinsic and intrinsic towards the right jobs Mm. and we remunerate on the basis of they did the job well that suits them. So what we need is a world where the, the corporate lawyer and the primary school teacher, who both do their job really well, can both make a lot of money. Mm. Because it's got to be about how well did you do the job you're well suited to. Mm. At the moment, what we do massively is we overvalue, you know, quote unquote bullshit jobs where we can't see the clear meaning from an intrinsic point of view. We seem to be punishing people in productive roles because more and more we go, we need that thing to be cheaper, so we need a robot to make it. So we're making people on the productive side of the economy who actually make things, their life harder and harder. Mm. Or or it's outsourced to another country. Another country, yeah. And we consistently undervalue the care economy because, oh, you're just looking after people. How does that matter? Well, what's society but people? So we've got such a a screwed-up worldview on how to balance these three parts of the economy. Yeah, well, because it's it's that people serve the economy. Yeah. They've got it the wrong way around kind of thing. Mm. So throughout the book, 
and particularly at the end, Graeber talks about this idea of managerial feudalism, that really we've got managers who want to enhance their status, have more people in roles below them so they can feel good about their own personal fiefdom. And that's the only reason, really, for lots of jobs <laughs> existing. Yeah. And in a sense, this is stuff that's been done before and possibly better by John Ralston Saul in Unconscious Civilization, where he argues in the 90s that we got to this point by the mid-90s of you know, corporatism, where everything runs like a company looking for more efficiency. It's all about management, not leadership. It's about doing yesterday in a more perfect way, not doing anything new. So this is nothing new. Ralston Saul was already arguing in the mid-90s that this had crept from the corporate world into the public sector and was starting to creep into politics. And in doing so, it was going to stop progression and development of a better world because people weren't interested in a better world. They were interested in a refined version of yesterday. And that, you know, corporatists hire mini-me's because all they want is a refined version of what they know and love. And really, that's all Graeber's describing when he talks about you know, finance, insurance and real estate is extrinsically motivated people who want to manage things more perfectly in a more detailed way and get like the perfect spreadsheet to say, didn't we do an amazing job because mm. we did what we did yesterday again. So that's not new, but it is terrible the extent to which that is dominating the corporate world and now the public service. Mm. You know, this idea of the corporate world genuinely becoming about care. Now, some companies definitely are. And guess what? Both of you have done the section in you know, Complex Problem Solving on Conscious Capitalism. And that's an annoying thing that you know, Graeber's writing this book where the conscious yeah. capitalism movement is already a big thing and shows no awareness of it. Mm. Which is, you know, to me, a bit of a problem that there are all these companies that have deliberately said that we are going to do good while we're doing well. We're going to build social value and intrinsic meaning in. Tim, am I recording properly? Because I'm getting weird feedback. You are. Um, possibly your headphones. Okay, so the mic's fine. Uh, yeah, yours wasn't. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah, yours was like not quite plugged in. I didn't notice it until just then. Okay, so it shouldn't have affected the mic, just my headphones? You yeah. sounded good to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because okay. it's only because, of, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. just gone weird again. Oh, oh bugger. I don't know why that's weird. It, John's had that problem at that point okay. as well. It doesn't matter if it's doing as long as the mic's okay. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, so, sort of to jump back. So it's a bit disappointing that in a sense, Graeber's not aware of John Ralston Saul talking about corporatism and managers replacing leaders. And he's not aware of conscious capitalism where companies themselves have said, no, we want intrinsically motivated people coming to work and being really productive because what we see is when you do good while you're doing well, you actually make much better products, deliver them far more effectively, people's productivity is far higher, their commitment to turning up is higher, customers are more loyal, stakeholders are more connected, everything is this big win-win-win. Now, so I guess he wrote an essay and it grew. And that's great, but it was almost like in his research to grow it, he missed the things that would have helped him both confirm his argument and show how capitalism, when driven by intrinsically motivated people, is trying to minimise the number of bullshit jobs. Mm. Yeah, but one of the points that we raised in just our initial comments before we turned the microphones on 
I think that this is sort of a beautiful and powerful thing because it's like you said, you know, John Ralston Saul came to these conclusions, you know, however, how many years ago and now David Graeber is. And the, David Graeber's arguments aren't powered from a conscious capitalism movement and yet make similar points or at least um, feeds into that movement. And that, again, coming from a completely different department perspective, um, sorry, like academic department, you get almost to a same the same spot. So that it's it. I I, I hear what you're saying because it could have it could becoming have, uncontroversial. Yeah, because mm. different people are reaching the same conclusions. Yes. Well, and it wouldn't surprise me if so. What if you've got an anthropologist saying it, you've got an, effectively an economist saying it, right? Or political scientist, political in scientist, yep. and right. you've got you know business Definitely people economists. worth a hundred million dollars in people like John Mackey saying it. Yeah. So the great thing is you've got people reaching the same conclusions in mm. different disciplines, and like you know. I, I, I would bet my bottom bet him, bet my bottom dollar that a psychologist would say it. For instance, hundred percent. Well, you know, that's a great thing. To, you know, the psychological bit that again, Graeber touches on and then disappears from. <laughs> where he talks about the fact that humans, as we're developing, you know, tiny little humans, we discover cause and effect. Mm. Mm. I can cause an effect, and the studies done on kids, which I imagine you're probably not allowed to do anymore because they would cause developmental problems, <laughs> is you stop the little human from causing an effect. Initially the little human has a tantrum. If you keep stopping them causing an effect, they go catatonic. Mm. They give up the will to interact with the world. It's, now, al- it's also when they first, when they have their first experience of cause and effect, it's when they realise that they are a part of the world and realise that they are alive. Yeah. So it's almost so intrinsically tied to ex- our existential experience. Mm. So you could almost say a philosopher would <laughs> yeah. almost agree with this. So- so, sorry to interrupt David. That's right. So I'll just sort of finish this a little bit, Jess, and then definitely add to it. But so what we're really seeing here is that cause and effect is so important to humans. And yet what we're seeing in Graeber's description of the education system is primary school and high school are really taking away effect, making docile people who turn up on time and follow orders. Most workplaces that could be described as bullshit jobs ask you to turn up, be docile, and do something highly repetitive or potentially inane. And yet we have all the rhetoric around school and uni about empowerment and agency. So there's a terrible dichotomy here between the rhetoric of empowerment and agency and the reality of wanting basically a docile muppet. No wonder people are confused and potentially depressed and miserable. Mm. It, it it then extends to, you know, what does it do to your sense of meaning? It reminds me of, you know, the Viktor Frankl book, Man's yeah. Search for Meaning. And he talks about your three pillars of life in order to have meaning. And it's something to do, something to look forward to and someone to love. Mm. And I mean, if you've got someone to love, well, then tick. It could even be a pet. And if you've got something to look forward to, that might just be the weekend. But if you're in a bullshit job, you know, well, you it, might have something to do. You might have something to rock up to. Mm. But if you don't have that that sense of authenticity around your work, if mm. you feel like what I'm doing is actually contributing to nothing, and if you're spending a lot of time there because it's effectively about having your butt in a seat, it's about being seen in an office or it's about having that little green circle next to your face on Skype or whatever your platform is for connecting, Teams or whatever, um, what does that do to your sense of meaning and purpose? And then, then what does that do to your mental health? Well, the other side of Frankel, how do you confront suffering? 
Mm. You know, the real thing that is the first bit he talks about in the book from the experience of the concentration camps. How do you confront suffering? So if you know that your job is a form of constant suffering, does that then erode, you know, the energy to love someone or something? You know, the energy to look forward to doing other things. The energy to convince yourself that the thing that you're doing is something and not nothing. Yeah. And suddenly the fact you're in a world that says you have to pay bills and you need coin of the realm to do that. What a way to reduce humans from agency Mm. and passion and dreams and ideas of making things better to if I don't do this, I'm not sure I'll have coins to pay for the rent or the car loan or any other thing. So suddenly the greatest motivator is fear of things being worse. Mm. That's a whole other level of suffering. That's not just the suffering of the job. That's now the suffering of I can't do anything but the job because I'll suffer more if I don't do it. Which is probably worse, right? Because you've got so. you've got this phenomenon that they call in um, the legal world, so I kind of semi have a legal background, they call it the pinstripe prison. It's like you can't escape it. Yeah, once and you're think, in. Yeah, yeah, right, because you've got you've got mortgages, you've got kids in schools that cost 30 grand a year, you've got a BMW in the driveway. You can't escape the job because you've you've organised your life in a way that you're kind of stuck in the bullshit. Hmm. I, I think it's an interesting contrast to say to somebody who, let's say, you've got a corporate lawyer who's on, let's say, 300 grand per annum versus somebody who cleans toilets for a living in a shopping centre and is on maybe 40 grand per annum. But that's a very meaningful job. That's, that might be a shitty job. <laughs> mm, but Get it's it? not a bullshit it's job. It's not a bullshit job, yeah. right? It's, it's the care economy and mm. it, it's kind of the dirty end of the care economy. <laughs> but you can take pride in the fact that that makes the world safer and nicer for everyone. Yeah, say what you, that's that's the quote, say what you like about mechanics and trash collectors, but that what they do is invaluable in the sense that you couldn't live without it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think to me where it ties in interestingly is that I, I recently read a book called Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman. Which we will get to and do an episode of when <laughs> I finally get around to reading it. I'm very passionate about it. I really enjoyed that book and I really like Scott Barry Kaufman in general. I think he's a really intelligent person. Um, but so in his book, he theorised that there are three different types of jobs um, and you've got you've got a job, which is something that you just, you rock up to in order to get money. And it's sort of, it's that sort of um, bilateral exchange and there's not much more to it than that. And then you've got something that's a career, which is where you, you like the idea of your progression within the job. Um, But you don't otherwise feel like there's much meaning attached to it. It's just that you like the idea of the progression and the idea that you could potentially earn more money. And then finally, you have what he determines as a calling. And people that think of their jobs as callings, um, you know, are so entrenched in their work and they enjoy it so much that, you know, even if it was for free, assuming that they otherwise had all their living costs sorted, they would still rock up and do it because they enjoy it so much. I think what's interesting is that you could have a bullshit, you wouldn't, you couldn't have a bullshit job also be a calling, I don't think. That that just seems oxymoronic. But you could certainly have a job in, in Scott Bray Kaufman's sense be not a bullshit job. But then perhaps, but what does that do for people who, so say the toilet cleaner, right? I don't think many people would think that toilet cleaning is their Mm, calling. No. And so I find this to be the interesting nexus of what I've been reading recently. That's interesting because I had this thought as well, right? And I had this moment, what we were just talking about before, and where it's really easy to follow Graeber along, but, but... I always thought, you know, what if I had to explain this to to my dad or someone who was maybe a little bit more conservative? I mean, they're just going to 
fob this off and say, well, that's all a bit idyllic and not everyone can do something that they want to do. And, mm. um, you know, uh, yeah, we can't we, all sit around singing Kumbaya. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But what I found fascinating about the kind of care economy and I guess some of the ways in which we describe other kinds of work like like toilet cleaning was that it, it actually gives more opportunities for kids who are thinking about what they want to do with their lives in terms of what they get out of their interpersonal relationships. So you might not necessarily be doing an activity that is your calling, but the value you get out of that in terms of the people you're around um, can be fulfilling in a, in a different kind of way. Leaves you healthy and happy and connected. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the, the meaning, the, like doing something that's meaningful is actually quite a lot broader than, uh, you know, think it is. NGOs. It's not just being a doctor or a nurse. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. It's not just about helping people in the kind of direct and physical sense. Yeah. And this mm. is where the caring economy, why we do need it to be valued and remunerated properly. Yes. Because it takes a lot more subtlety to mm. deal with people, particularly if they're stressed or unwell or upset, than it does to just check off where the numbers are in the right column. Yeah. So, like, I, I, like, career profiles might even be, if you know, if you care about others in you know, X ways, then you know, cleaning might actually be something that um, can fulfil you in that way. So long as our society appreciates what that is, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So. Yeah, broadly people could have a calling of cleaning. It sounds a bit weird. but Well, there was an example in the book where someone was in one of the major accounting firms, Mm. walked away and became a cleaner. Yes. And makes the point, okay, mega drop in pay, mega increase in sense of well-being. Mm. Mm. So, and this, we get sort of back to, again, what we were talking about before we started recording, and that is that pretty much on economic grounds, I'd given up on the idea of a universal basic income. Mm. that economically, yeah, MMT can achieve a lot of good, universal basic income is too hard to manage. Mm-hmm. And yet Graeber's social argument mm. for universal basic income to ensure that at least everyone has enough money to have some flexibility to find meaning and purpose somewhere, if not at work, that if we can't create meaningful jobs for everyone based on their extrinsic, intrinsic sort of motivation, uh, you know, identity, at least we can make sure that they've got enough money to do other things. Mm. So mm. really the idea of getting down to a 20-hour work week for most people and a UBI that mm. guarantees that with your UBI and your 20 hours, you could have an okay life and do more things that are meaningful to you. Mm. But if what's meaningful to you is a career where you do 50 hours, but that makes you happy and you can earn a lot of money doing it, there's no problem. Mm. But for the person for whom they just want to do something, they take a little bit of pride in doing it well, their big thing is to spend time with their family, you know, to look after their garden, that there's some way that they can do that as well. And in a world where we've already distorted our economy so badly by moving finance and insurance inside uh, the productive boundary, We've already created this weird artificial world. We've already seen the consequences of outsourcing to other countries. We're starting to see the consequences of robotic production. Mm. The reality is productive work is going down. Extractive work has been a big thing for 20 or 30 years. How do we skim money 
offer strange financial products, but it is not rewarding for most people. At the moment, we undervalue the care economy. We definitely need to rebalance. And maybe part of the rebalance is a UBI. But my problem is now that that UBI has to be so sophisticated in how it works because its purposes are all social, but it has to be managed economically. Well, I, I, well, David Graeber described because as an anarchist, almost describes that it is it it's um, simple. I, yeah, but he's it's simple in in everyone gets their tiny bag of money. In that sense, he's absolutely correct. Oh, I, I didn't. I must have ignored it, or I had interpreted that the UBI was like a livable wage because the argument he was making about um, uh, wages for housewives was what was the. The campaign it was a feminist campaign. Yeah, for homework, getting yeah. paid for. Yeah. yeah, but the point is, at the end of the day, if we decide that this is the right of money and everyone should have it, that is easy to do in terms of crediting the dollars mm. into people's accounts. Mm-hmm. But managing the economy in which you do that is not simple. Right. So the social benefit is huge, and crediting dollars into accounts is simple. It's what a government can tell the Reserve Bank to do. Yeah. But now manage the economy that happens as a consequence of that massive money flowing yeah it's like almost well one it's behavioral economics but it's also um it's like when you try and control a society well it's social engineering social but engineering. more importantly the, the risk of inflation which is the greatest problem with putting more dollars in the economy goes through the roof so you know we start on bullshit jobs and we end up back in you know the rules of mmt in a sense you can create dollars to pay for real resources to do public good as long as you manage inflation risks. And it's when we get to that final step that a UBI for social reasons becomes, oh crap, how do we do that successfully? But to my mind, the inflation from a UBI in this sense, in the inflationary effects would be behavioural. Wouldn't it be because of all of these people who now have this amount of money what are they doing with it? It may inflate certain resources X, Y, Z because everyone has decided they want you know this thing or they want to to do a certain thing with their money. Yeah, what, what the, the inflation would be that there's competition over the available resources. So, yeah, and that's so, the potential problem that you give the money away, but then need to somehow stop people from spending it. Uh, y- yeah, actually, it would almost be trying to stop people from spending because it. Because if you've, if so many people have said, well, if I only need to do a 15, 20 hour week, mm. well, I could do that in a country town, so I want to move. So suddenly, you know, median house price in the country towns go up $200,000. Mm-hmm. Well, and everyone needs that extra, you know, money and it also is competing for these houses that are now more expensive. You, you've created a whole new out of control property bubble and need for, you know, more money to buy property. Yeah, which is it, you almost it then lend yourself to communism <laughs> because if everyone would just, you would just have to start making people get all the same things so that, that yeah. way it's not, mm. yeah. And in a sense, we've then diminished the whole thing of agency yeah. and of dealing with the people who are intrinsic or extrinsic. So as much <laughs> as I can still see the social benefit of the UBI, the economics of managing a UBI still escape me. Mm. And this is the thing, I've had no problem getting my head around MMT and mm. the way to apply it to solve mid-sized problems. Mm-hmm. But to take the massive leap to a UBI to genuinely solve major social problems Almost everything, means really. a complete rethink of everything about an economy. Yeah, It's not just saying, we're going to explain to you how money works like MMT does. Yeah, It's not like saying, as so many MMT economists do, that we're going to come up with you know a federal job guarantee. 
They are manageable things. But to fundamentally alter the amount of money in the economy and not know what people are going to do with it on the day where you give them that money. Like when you give someone money for the federal job guarantee, theoretically, they're turning up and doing something of social value. Mm. But if enough people are unemployed, let's be blunt, we can't generate enough jobs with social value. So some of the things created under a federal job guarantee are going to end up having to be bullshit jobs if it's about actually giving people work and income. But at least we know where they are, nine to five, Monday to Friday. With UBI, we suddenly have people out in the world spending money and have to magically deal with the consequences in real time of destabilising our economy, potentially causing inflation, potentially causing property bubbles, potentially causing all sorts of things that happen in real time as people go about spending their dollars. Well, the, the reason that you have to do this is because th- there, are, there are things that are massively socially valuable that are not financially remunerated. Precisely. Right. And we've and talked about that with Phil before, yep. which is that a large part of GDP um, expenditure in the last century has been literally just formalizing parts of the economy, like taking childcare, which was always socially valuable, and then taking it giving out, it from, a do- yeah, giving it a dollar out from houses and putting it into the private yep. economy. GDP went up. Why? Because we counted childcare. Exactly. So this is the UBI in some sense is just trying to economically or financially remunerate all the things that mm. we find socially valuable. But one of the things that Graeber describes in his book is that we don't make companies, corporations pay for the value they get out of rearing children for them to use as a labor force. For instance, we don't get, we don't have companies remunerate um, housewives, let's say, uh, or, or whatever, house people, because yeah. you know we had we now have stay-at-home home dads, homemakers. Yeah, we don't, homemakers. yeah, homemakers. We don't have them remunerate homemakers who allow their executive um, spouse to go and work for X Y Z company, mm. when actually that company derives an Huge amount of value, value because the the their labor depends on those things happening. Yeah. Um, so, is there a way in which we could kind of enforce? I don't know whether because David Graeber doesn't like policy, but because we're not necessarily opposed to that. I know that you're an anarchist, but I'm not on board with that yet because I don't know enough about it. Um, <laughs> can we enforce some kind of policy where corporations like Amazon or something, because they have stacks of money, appropriately remunerate all of these socially valuable things? So that way it doesn't have to be a universal basic income. That's to me why valuing the care economy properly is the first step. Mm. Mm, Do something that empowers a lot of people to have more financial power, still doing things they value. A CEO of a mega corporation generally adds less value to the world Mm. than someone that looks after children. Yeah, I read something about that recently. Like, Do you think Bill Gates feels like he's, you know, got a meaningful job in terms (laughs) of like, as in he's caring? Because in the sense, like in a sense, like he's donating a lot of his money to charity. I think right? he does now. I think when he was at Microsoft, he was a shit, mm-hmm. and he's in a sense he's trying to redeem his years of being a shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure Jeff Bezos is showing any signs of redeeming himself from being a shit. He Nobody's ex-wife is. Have you yeah, read about yeah, his ex-wife? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, give her eleven points out of ten. Yeah, clap, clap, clap. But yeah, so I think this is why, to me, if you can remunerate caring properly and recognize. Why have we got crazy remuneration in extractive industries? Mm. Again, so we go back to our value episode. 
If what you are doing is extracting value from somewhere else and in doing so diminishing other people and their capacity to make the rich richer, well, there's no social utility in that and it doesn't help our economy run better. So someone needs to write the care economy book. Yeah. Well, I almost think you would... You, you almost need a book or we need to refigure out how to how to create jobs, right? Because oh, so, yeah. society needs jobs. People, we can't live in a world where nobody works. Well, thing needs to, yeah, things need to be done. Yeah, things do need to be done. And I think that there needs to be a sense of pragmatism around all of this, right? Mm. It's like, how do we transfer this into the real world? And sure. it's like, perhaps it's about, not about well, what are bullshit jobs, but it's more well, what isn't a bullshit job. Well, more importantly, I think the first step is to say that someone working in hospitality or retail doing 20 hours a week is in a sense, in a way, in the caring economy. And if they earned enough money in that 20 hours or that 20 hours plus some sort of subsidy, mm. that they could have a life they enjoy and still work their 20 hours, that's a much better world than we've got now. Oh, definitely. And uh, So there's things we can do that are about tinkering and improving. It's about rephrasing it, you know. It's about kind of going, you know, if I, if I stem back to the calling thing, you can accept that your calling is not your work, right? Mm. Your mm. calling could be knitting. Your calling could be, um, I don't know, even spending time with your children. You could feel like that's your calling, being a parent, for instance, mm. or riding horses or, you know, whatever, or doing marathons, you know. Something could be your calling that isn't your job. And I think so long as you have a – your job helps fund that – that's okay, but it's important that it's not a bullshit job. That your you job is not be... detrimental to your psychological and physical Correct, well-being. Correct, because then you might stop doing your contract. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We need a social contract that says, at the very least, we'll make sure that jobs in our society don't do you psychological and physical harm. Mm. Now, of course, there's going to be exceptions, like you know, joining the military and going to war. Something really bad could happen. Mm. Being, you know, working in a fire department or being a paramedic or, you know, a police officer. Mm. Bad things can happen. But in the main, the majority of jobs, there should be, you know, minimal risk of physical and psychological harm from the nature of how the job has been defined Mm -hmm. and managed. Even if we just improved that standard so that the care economy started treating carers like they matter. Mm. Because everyone in the care economy is, in a sense, a carer of a sort. That would be a radical improvement. You know, all the people in hospitality who can't take it seriously because you can't stay on 20 hours a week working weird hours. Well, what if you could stay on 20 hours a week working weird hours because you know you didn't need to work the other four days? What if you knew that you could be okay like that so you could take pride in doing it really well and get really good at it knowing you'd be okay anyway? I'd love that so good i think a lot of people would love that oh yeah and that's the interesting thing right i think if you actually get talking to people a lot of people would sooner live like this actually my dad who's Mm. probably listening hi dad i know he's probably listening my dad is a great example of somebody who scaled back he was in sort of um upper middle management Mm. vibes probably bullshit i don't want to say your job was bullshit dad but you know but you kind of admitted me that maybe it was you know or certainly surrounded by a lot of jobs heading in that direction correct correct it's it's not to say that it you know, was it was at the least bullshit adjacent. Yeah, well, it yeah, was yeah. getting close to that mid-level managerial thing def- where managing yesterday to perfect today 
rather than making anything genuinely get better or leading in a new direction, mm. was becoming normal. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, he was only saying to me last week that, you know, he would have to get there at 6.30 every morning because he would have a meeting at 7am every morning. Every morning had a 7am stand up. And then he usually wouldn't get home till about 6.30. And then even after 6.30, he was getting e- emails and calls all night in case something went wrong because yeah. it was sort of a 24-7 business. Um, and so, you know... It, I guess in some sense he was helping things be smoother running and things like that. And maybe there's some some such thing as a, a semi-bullshit job, right, where it some, somewhat feels meaningless but not mm. entirely. I guess in a sense he was helping productivity, mm. right, in, in this particular situation. But also in an ideal situation they'd go, that's physically and mentally too tiring for one person. Mm-hmm. Let's make that two jobs. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That would be the proper solution to this having economic utility – and social utility. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Was your dad would have maybe done the seven a.m. till you know one in the afternoon, and the second person would have done one till nine. Mm. Yeah, some definitely. combo like that maybe. Yeah, I mean, and to, to my dad's credit, he's he ejected himself out of that scenario, and now he has a job that he finds much more fulfilling, which is not as well remunerated. But he is able to listen to podcasts all day and, you know, like your podcast and um, he reads audio books. But what he does is he does, um, you know, he, he drives around doing deliveries and that's actually, that's a very meaningful job, right? It's productive mm. and it's also caring, I guess, in a sense, if you, if you think about it, you're helping people. Mm. Um, well, a lot of productive and caring things probably overlap. Oh, I, I would say so. I think there's a huge, it's like a Venn diagram, right? And I just think, oh, what an excellent example of somebody who's so much more happy and so much more fulfilled because of that change. It's a really, mm. in my mind, and I think most people who are listening to this can probably think of somebody who had a career shift where they went from doing something that was either bullshit or at least quasi-bullshit to something that might have been less well remunerated and might have been less prestigious, but they find infinitely more meaningful. Mm. Well, look at just two of us sitting at this table. You've started studying psychology this year Mm. and I'm now enrolled to start a master's in media to learn to do this stuff better. Mm. In a sense, it's that deliberate choice to go, how do I align with what I am more effectively? Mm -hmm. How do I make sure that what I do is good for me and good for others if both of those things matter? Mm -hmm. And remuneration, yes, it's nice, but it's not convincing enough for so many people, certainly not for me, to make it the principal motivator. Mm feels to me like we've got a pretty good natural spot to stop that a lot of jobs can be bullshit but probably don't need to be if we thought more about not overwhelming people or demanding too much or saying that work has to be everything Mm. Mm. and if we tried to understand things through the prism of caring and productivity more so you know as as somebody who maybe maybe you're struggling and you're feeling like your job is bullshit if you can try and put it into the perspective of caring or productivity, maybe it will help you feel better. You know, if you really can't get out of your job and you truly do feel like it's bullshit, which is to say that you find it meaningless and that if you fell off the face of the earth, nobody would notice <laughs> in terms of your job, you know, mm. your family and friends, obviously, but you, you know what I'm saying. Mm. Um, yeah, perhaps it's about reframing it and looking at it through a different prism and kind of going, okay, like, for instance, I had a job for a little while working at the Qantas Contact Centre with covid um, I could have really thought, oh, you know what, these customers are angry anyway and this is just pointless. But I, I ended up viewing it from a caring perspective. Like in hindsight, I ended up thinking, oh, like this is probably one of my most rewarding jobs at Qantas because I feel like I'm really helping these people. I'm really caring for these people. So a lot of, whereas, uh, you know, it would have been easy to have felt dissatisfied doing that task. Mm. And so perhaps it's all about 
that's why I think the idea of a book where it's about well, what's an anti-bullshit job yeah. would be quite a clever idea. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I've uh, all the way through the book, I kept thinking that this would be such a good thing for at least like. Um, like career, what are the career advisors, advisors yeah. and things at schools? Like yeah. to be familiar if, with, if you were to be able to sit down and help people work out what are you looking for, what's your motivation, how much of your meaning has to come from work. Yeah, mm. which is much better advice than going through those bloody uh, surveys where you work out what job suits your personality by mm. filling out a hundred questions or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You'd be way better off just saying, "Well, what actually are my values, and where can I do something that is valuable according yeah, to my based. values?" Mm-hmm. Yes. Anyway, we'll leave it there. I think we've um, bullshitted on for long enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to thank you, Jess Floyd, for joining us. It's been valuable. Oh, you're welcome. It's always a good time joining you guys. So thank you for having me. <laughs> and thank you, David. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, listeners. And listeners, as of Monday, I have my own website. Mm. So please go and have a look at davidolney.com.au and fill in the contact form and send me an email. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.